not been setting any speed records on this article, and that is fine, because if there's good discussion, that's good. But we are on, uh, yeah, chapter 8, section 4, page 24 in your booklets. If you want to turn there, then we will open in prayer. And I think I am going to ask Rob Harder to open in prayer, if I may be so bold. Amen. All right. So I'll read the article again, and then you might have to help me remember where we left off exactly. We've hit a few rabbit trails as we've gone along. Um, yeah. Bottom of page 24 here. The Lord Jesus most willingly undertook this office. To discharge it, he was born under the law and perfectly fulfilled it. He also experienced the punishment that we deserved and that we should have endured and suffered. He was made sin and a curse for us. He endured extremely heavy sorrows in his soul and extremely painful sufferings in his body. He was crucified and died and remained in a state of death, yet his body did not decay. On the third day, he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. In this body, he also ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of his Father, interceding. He will return to judge men and angels at the end of the age. And if I'm not mistaken, does it make sense that we got till footnote 27? Or is anyone going to correct me on that? I'm getting... Yeah? Okay. Good. So... On the third day, he rose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. So let's pick up the note there on 28. Who wants to take John 20, 25 through 27? Do I have a volunteer? Howard is willing. John 20, 25 through 27. Okay, so we know a few things here, and we've talked about this here, we've talked about it at Men's Theology Night, is the continuity and the discontinuity in the current age and in the age to come in our current bodies 
uh, and in the resurrected form of our bodies. And so there's renewal, obviously, at the resurrection. We're raised spiritually, and again, this is important to understand. To be raised spiritually doesn't mean we turn into a vapor or into some kind of hologram type of thing. It's real concrete bodies with bones and flesh that you can touch. Uh, And yet, there's also discontinuity, right? So we see both. Um, And so it's the same Jesus that carries the same scars in his same body that is a resurrected body. Uh, And we discussed, I think this was at men's night, that the doors are locked and Jesus just appears there. And so what's that? Uh, Can a resurrected body transport itself? Or is this kind of a special one-time miracle uh, that Jesus did, like his other miracles, that he just appeared? I probably, myself, and this isn't a test of orthodoxy whatsoever, I probably tend to think it's probably uh, a miracle having to do with his reappearance, but I've never been in the age to come, so I don't know how it works moving around. So it could well be uh, that this is a common thing uh, for a resurrection body. Um, I tend to think it's probably related to his appearing uh, and to the miraculous nature of that time frame, but I don't know. Uh, But we do know it is the same body. So there's continuity and discontinuity both. Um, And I'm willing to open up any discussion that we've had on that. The men who come to men's night are probably tired of this topic already because this is what we discussed two weeks ago. Um, But it's all things to, to think about, to discuss. Can we see both continuity and discontinuity in our current bodies and their resurrected forms? Some things carry over and some things are different. Some things are new. Do we see that? Yeah. Let's keep going. In this body, he also ascended into heaven. And footnote 29 is there. So that's Mark 16 and Acts. Who wants to take Mark? Hugh has got Mark, and who wants to take Acts? Keenan. Nope, I'll get you next time. Keenan can do it, and I'll get Gord the next time. Sorry. Um, go ahead, Keenan. Or, no, whoever had Mark. Hugh had Mark. Okay. So, again, speaking of not knowing how things work. Jesus went up with a physical body, which he retains at this very moment. This is more important than many people think, that Jesus retained his physical body, and Jesus is a man with a physical body right now. Very important. That's the way he went up. Once he added a human nature to himself, it cannot be taken away. So he he stays in that state, which is how he can eternally be an intercessor for us. However, it says that he goes to sit at the right hand of the Father, and spatially, where is that? Does anyone know? Someone should put it in Google Maps, maybe. (laughs) Maybe Google Maps knows something we don't know. Spatially, we don't know where this is. So there is some dynamic that we can't understand that a physical body can be somewhere where we spatially don't know. Uh, and, and don't understand given our limitations that we're currently working with. But he is there, uh, and that's where he comes 
in final judgment, he comes from where he is right now. He comes from uh, the right hand of the Father to come and judge the living and the dead at the final judgment. Um, oh, was there a question? Okay, well, good question. So Emma's asking, how can Christ sit at the right hand of himself? And I'll say, I'm going to ask Emma some questions here. Can I put you on the spot? I think you can, you're a bright girl. I think you can answer your own question. Okay, how many gods are there? One. How many persons in the Trinity? Three. Okay, and are they all the same person or are they different persons? So I'm going to ask you here very specifically, is the Father the Son? Well, is the, are they both God? Yeah, but who does Jesus pray to in the garden? To the Father, right? So even though they're both God, they're different persons in God. And if you don't understand it, you're in good company with every Christian who has ever lived. So you don't need to feel bad about that. But we, we know that they're different persons, right? So somehow they relate to each other like a father and a son do, even though they're both God. So he can sit beside his father. He is sitting there somehow in a way that we don't fully understand, but they're not the same person. They're both God, yes, but in God there's three, there's three persons that relate to each other a little bit differently. So you can say Jesus is God and you can say the Father is God, but you can't say Jesus is the Father. And if that's confusing, don't come see me afterward because I don't have a better answer for you than that. <laughs> I won't be able to help you more than that. Some things are a mystery for us. Or am I misunderstanding your question? I am on, okay, good. Good, thank you for that. Jolyn. Okay, and the newness of it is that you would have conceived of the father as a physical person? Okay, okay, that's interesting because if I had to guess, I would guess that most people see Christ as a purely spiritual being. If I had to guess, I would think most Christians overly spiritualize the Trinity and don't see it concretely enough, but that's interesting that you would have seen it more concrete. Um, even the father would have been a con- like someone you could touch. Interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's all the spirit. <laughs> and you're really feeling it at a Pink Floyd concert? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pink Floyd does not offer true spirituality. I will, I will agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> And given my lack of substance abuse, I only understand about 15 to 20% of what's happening in any given Pink, Pink Floyd song. And maybe, maybe not even that much. Yeah. We'll leave that there. Um, 
So, yeah, so in the Trinity, and this is, this is important ongoing discussion. I had someone come up to me a couple of weeks ago when we were discussing the Trinity, kind of in private, just one-on-one, and asking even about submission inside the Trinity, because that's a discussion point too. Inside the Trinity, does the Son submit to the Father? And how would we answer that? Is the Son subordinate to the Father inside the Trinity? Okay. If there's submission, how many wills have to be involved? Minimum. Two. How many God how many wills in God? One. Hey! There is no submission inside the Trinity. When we're talking about the Trinity, we're t- we can talk about two things. We can talk about uh, the ontological Trinity, or what's called the Trinity ad intra. So inside, picture it as a triangle. What's inside the triangle is all God. There's one will there. There can't be submission. Because if there's submission, that means there's more than one will in God. And God is one. But when you look at the uh, external operations, or the what's sometimes called the, the Trinity ad extra, means the outside or the economic Trinity, and economics is just the study of how things operate, then clearly there is submission between the Son and the Father, right? And that becomes possible because the Son has two wills. But inside the Trinity, there's only one will, so there can't be submission. There's a perfect harmony of will because there's one essence. There's one God inside the Trinity. Um, So when we're dealing with these things, we're dealing with fascinating things. And again, I can't stress this enough because this has become a practical thing too. When we study the deep things of theology, apart from what we're studying, several things can happen. One is that you start learning stuff and you think, now with my superior theology, I can start dunking on other Christians. Okay? And learning good theology is important. It absolutely is. But the point is not to dunk on other Christians because of our superior theology. We'd love to get them along through discussion, yes. But the point of this is to get deeper into our sense of awe, deeper into our sense of reverence, deeper into our sense of gratitude. And if we're going to dunk on something, it should be our own sin, not on other Christians. And I don't uh, see that as a problem with Jolene. I've known Jolene for many years, and she's a very sweet, humble lady. I say it for people who are like me, right? Typically men, typically on the front half of your life. This stuff isn't just to enjoy the joy of logic, which you should enjoy the joy of logic. It's truly fascinating, and it's a gift from God. And we should enjoy the deep things of Scripture. But this should fill us with humility and reverence and putting our own sin to death rather than trying to humiliate other Christians. And I don't say that to you, I'm saying that to us as a group, you get into this stuff and it's fascinating and it's all new. And if you're like me, when I started learning this stuff in my late 20s, this angry young man thing kicks in. Why did nobody teach me this? It makes so much more sense. And, and you get impatient, you get frustrated, almost angry sometimes that I wasn't taught this. And that isn't a sanctified, <laughs> a sanctified response. So when we talk about these things, um, it's not you know, probably, I'm guessing most of us don't come from a church background that had a discussion about the ontological versus the economic trinity. I'm guessing, okay? That's not where the church is at in North America these days. 
But that doesn't mean this isn't important. It is important to think about these things, right? Emma's question is important. These are all important practical things that should drive us to deeper reverence. Um, but it's for our own edification, not for looking down on other Christians. And I'm speaking that to myself. Um, but more to Jolyn's point specifically, the, the Father is a person, the Son is a person, the Spirit is a person, and only one of those persons, the Son, has added a human physical nature to himself. So in the Son, we have two wills, we have two natures in the Son, but inside the Trinity, inside that triangle, there's just one God with one essence, one nature, one will. Okay? So almost think of it the way I conceptualize this, and you have to be careful with this too. If you think of this as the triangle, in the corner where the sun is, add a little circle, that's his humanity, <laughs> onto it. Right? So everything inside the Trinity is one. On the outside, at those points, there's different operations and different ways of relating to each other. Some have suggested, and I think this is certainly a possibility, if God is spirit, why do we need an extra Holy Spirit? Right? Why do we need two spirit beings? And I think that's part of what you were kind of getting at. Okay. Um, well, I think also, you know, other language, the arm of the Lord is not shortened. Right? Um, what is God's arm of justice? Well, one time it's Nebuchadnezzar, who's not even a believer, who's the arm of the Lord, punishing the Israelites for their sin. Um, sometimes the arm of the Lord uh, is the Romans doing their thing, right? So the arm of the Lord, and this is where we have to be careful. Sometimes people spiritualize texts and then um, it's like there's no real physical application. I think it's spiritual language, but I think God's arm doesn't mean God has a physical anatomy like I do. The Father, at least not. Christ clearly does, right? So we could say Christ is God, so God has a physical body. That would be fair enough. Um, but the Father's throne, I'm guessing, is not physical in the same way that Christ is physical. And that's what makes this different dimensions hard for us to comprehend. Where is it spatially? I'm thinking of an analogy on the fly here. What does the right hand mean? Well, the right hand means um, in a place of being a vice regent, right? Well, 
if I'm understanding, I think... Yes. Okay. <laughs> Imperfect analogy. On our farm, I enjoy working in the barn. I prefer working with cows. And if I'm in the shop, I'm in a bad mood because something's gone wrong. I don't enjoy trouble. I don't enjoy fixing. I don't, I just, I'd way rather be in the barn than in the shop. I won't name my child, but one of my sons is... <laughs> Loves being in the shop, loves welding, loves fixing, passionate about it. He's my right-hand man, okay? And he is my right-hand man when he's at his grandpa's place in the shop welding something for me for the barn, and I'm in the barn. He's not, we're not spatially at the same place, and I know this is a bit of a stretch in terms of an analogy because we're both spatial and physical, but he is my right-hand man regardless of where we are spatially in relation to each other because he is an heir and a vice regent to what is mine. I'm the father, he's the son, uh, he is an heir, he inherits what, what is mine one day, right? Um, and so that's how I would see the right hand of the father is a place of a vice regent. He's waiting for his inheritance. He's, he's there serving his father in union with his father at the right hand of his father, um, putting this world under his footstool. Well, okay, there too, a footstool is a physical thing, is the world a footstool? Well, no, but also absolutely, right? It, it's not a physical footstool, but it is a footstool in the sense that Jesus is putting his feet to rest as his enemies are being subdued on this planet, right? So some of that language is spiritual language that takes a physical form, but not, not necessarily a wooden physical form, right? Is the world Jesus' footstool? Yes, but it's a ball, Right? Or, or to think, you know, us as living stones. Well, if you, you know, if you spiritualize these stones, well, is it just Pink Floyd stuff? Well, no, it's not. Everyone in this room is a living stone and physical. <laughs> I can shake hands with anyone. So it is physical, right? So by spiritualizing things, I don't think it means it exists in the 19th dimension. There's a real life, tangible manifestation of it. And so the right hand of the Father, I would just say Jesus is putting all his enemies under his feet, waiting for uh, that transfer of the kingdom between father and son, that he can be all in all. And what does that mean? Well, that's a whole other big discussion. But uh, that's the way I would understand it, as a vice regent, not as in terms of a spatial relationship so much. I don't know if that makes sense, or you disagree, or agree, or whatever. I can work with that. <laughs> Right, he's carrying out his father's mission. Yep. And that's how I would understand being at the right hand of the father. He is, he is carrying out his father's mission of conquering his enemies. Yeah. Um, Peter and then Kenan. 
And that's absolutely true. That is part of what goes into that right-hand that place. Peter says it's a place of honor, and that's, that's correct. The sun isn't a place of honor with the sun. Keenan. So Kenan's question is, how could, the father, or how could the son ever leave the father's right hand? And you're talking in that time that he was on earth. Or, what, or not necessarily. I think, so some of these things, how can God ever not be God? All true questions. But there is an advance and a progress of Christ's work in history that somehow in a way that we don't fully understand, there is progress. Is Jesus Christ the Savior from before the foundation of the world? Yes. Did Jesus save the world before Adam and Eve fell? Yes, in one sense he did. And yet in terms of the progress of history, these steps are important. When he ascends to heaven, he is Lord in a way somehow that he was not in time before. That doesn't mean he was less Lord before, but there is something in the operations in time where he has been promoted to a new place of glory in terms of that you know, redemptive steps. And I often think in terms of, you know, well, when exactly did that happen? Can you pinpoint the second... Um, because often these things kind of work in stages or in gradual progress. And I always think, well, when, when is a couple married? When they're engaged, that's one step, right? A promise is made. When the minister, uh, when they say their vows to each other, that's another step. When the minister announces them for the first time, that's another step. When they exchange rings, that's another step. And then when they consummate their marriage physically, that's another step. So where along there are they married? <laughs> right? How, to say that there's an exact line, well, you know, one second ago you weren't married. Um, if you die in a car crash on your way to your honeymoon from the church, are you married? Sort of. Not fully. If an earthquake happens and the wedding stops right between the minister, you know, the exchange of rings and announcing the couple for the first time, are you married? Well, where, where exactly <laughs> does that happen? And I don't have an answer. I don't know. These things work themselves out in, you know, when did the church start? Did the church start at Pentecost? Did it start at Jesus' ascension? Somewhere in those 49 days in between? I, I don't know. Um, but I would say that there is something about Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father that displays his lordship in a way that was not there beforehand. Because we're that much closer to the final consummation of all things. So there is progress in those steps. But I, beyond that, I, I'm leery of people that know the exact day that the church started. It could be Pentecost. It could be the Ascension. It could be when Jesus called the Twelve. Those have all been proposed we're dealing with such a tight time frame, I don't actually need to know the exact day that the church started. 
And some would say, man, it was absolutely Pentecost. And I, okay, yeah, <laughs> I'm good with that. <laughs> More discussion on this. Did God physically walk with yeah, There's a great question. Um, possibly. Um, and if he did, I would say it would have been in the form of Christ. Because I think those physical manifestations, when God comes in physical form, and I was talking with someone about this the other day, doesn't matter. Um, you know, when Jacob's wrestling all night with this messenger, the fourth man in, in the furnace with Daniel and his friends, um, some have suggested one of the messengers that Abram and Sarah invite into their tent could have been God himself. Um, Melchizedek, some people believe, is, is God. Uh, incarnate. And so there are seemingly physical appearances of God in human form with flesh that happened before Jesus was born in Nazareth. Those are called Christophanies, which just means an, an appearing of Christ before he was born the normal way. And so uh, if, if God was physically walking in the garden, I think that will have been the second person of the Trinity if it was a physical walking. It would be would fit, but I, we don't have tons of information on that. It, c- it could be a spiritual reference to the closeness between them, or it could be a physical human body walking with them. It could be both. Yeah, and, and exactly, that would make it sound physical, wouldn't it? Yep. Yep. Anything else? Joanne? Okay. That's the way I try to... I, okay, yes, we never got to that. Um, why do we need the Father and the Spirit? Well, I would say, in terms of the way they operate, um, the Father is the one who is the sovereign, who has absolute right over his creation to make demands. Right? The Spirit's job is to enable or empower people to meet those demands. And the Son is ultimately the one who does it on our behalf. But the Spirit is the one who applies that to individual people. Could God have arranged that in a way where two or four would have done this work? I suppose He could have. Um, but He chose to say the Father is absolute sovereign. He makes demands on his creation. He's the one who needs to be satisfied. The son meets those demands uh, and adopts brothers and sisters to himself so that they can appear before the father being fully justified, fully righteous. And the spirit is the one who applies the son's work to individual people so that they can enjoy union with father and son. So the spirit's work, in a sense, is also subservient to father and son. And if you get into ancient Christianity, this was actually quite a point of discussion whether the Spirit proceeds from just the Father or whether the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Is he subservient to both? And I think he is. And, and certainly Western Christianity has agreed. He's subservient to both. He's serving the, the, the Father and the Son. So there is a hierarchy 
in the way in terms of the way they operate even though they share one will that all works that all works together some people and i don't know how far i'd press this some people have suggested how often have you noticed when you read an epistle it gets signed off grace and peace has anyone ever noticed that grace and peace and then you do a deep dive on some of the greek and some very capable, trustworthy, sound, orthodox men, such as uh, certainly Jonathan Edwards and possibly B.B. Warfield, have suggested that the grace and peace is the Holy Spirit. The grace and peace signing off is a, is a greeting in the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so the, the, the imagery there is that the Holy Spirit is the relational love inside the Trinity, the closeness that they have with each other, and that that mutual love pours itself out in terms of personal action in history, of applying redemption to sinners and enabling them to to live a sanctified life, to live holiness. So some have, and I think that's helpful language. I'm sure you could push it too far, but I think that's helpful, um, that it's a kind of a relational person, so to speak. I don't know if anyone's heard that suggestion before. And that's, again, we're all operating with three-pound brains here that are operating at 10%, maybe. So some of these things are just, we go as far as we can and we can't go further. Yeah. Church elders, or Yeah, and that's a tremendously important observation. And if, if anyone didn't hear Yonica, she's saying how you see kind of a Trinitarian stamp in other places in creation, like elders, members in, in, in the church or in a family, father, wife, and children. You see this three-fold design in lots of places. And I would say, does that make sense that a Trinitarian creation would have that stamp all over it. I'd even say if you do the biblical cosmology stuff, which we talked about a few weeks ago here, it's always three stories. Noah's Ark has three stories. The earth has three stories. Heaven has three stories. There's threes all over the place. It makes a lot of sense that a God who is three in one would make a creation in his image that mirrors threeness and oneness.
There's threeness, yep. Yeah. And I'll say this too. This is maybe still fresh on my mind from teaching the apologetics class. But here's the question that keeps philosophers up at night and usually makes them go crazy if they're not Christians. Philosophers look at the world and they say unity and diversity, the one and the many, and they can't make sense of it. They'll resolve it one way or the other. They'll either become empiricists while everything is just observation. We can't know what man is. All we can know is Ron and Howard and Hugh. That's all we can know, right? The scientific approach to the world. But you can't ever find harmony or unity in science in that approach to life ever. Or you go the oneness route. Well, there's manness out there, but you can't ever make any comments about anything individual, right? The kind of this rationalism or, or um, idealism. And I'd say, who can answer the problem of the one and the many in the philosophical world? Christians can. We actually can make sense of a world that has oneness and manyness, right? We can make sense of the fact that everyone in this room has a concept of three, let's say, or seven. Everyone in this room has a concept of sevenness. But seven doesn't exist anywhere. You can find seven chairs, seven fish, seven bowls, seven spoons, right? But where does that concept come from? How can we live in a world of one and many? And Christians can say, well, it makes perfect sense. A triune God created this. Of course there's oneness and manyness. We have the answer. We can resolve it through Trinitarian creation. The philosophers, you can all lose your minds trying to figure this out, and you won't get anywhere. As Christians, we have an answer of the one and the many. Right? And, and this stuff finds its way everywhere. You know, father, wife, and, and children is a great example. How does that mirror the Trinity? Do children proceed just from the father? Right? They don't. Right? Yep. Yep. Yes. Yep. That's right. Eventually, we've got to finish number four here, so let's power. And I don't want to cut off conversation, but let's keep it moving here. Unless there's anything else that's pressing. No. <laughs> No, <laughs> Howard's always shooting threes right at the buzzer. <laughs> Speaking of threes. All right. Um, so in this body, he also ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding. And Gord was up next. Do you want to take Romans 8? And then who wants to take Hebrews 9 on that note? And I'm going to volunteer. Oh, Howard put his hand up. Okay. So we'll get Gord on Romans 8. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay. So it's pretty plain language. He's interceding for us. The God-man is representing man, interceding to God, the mediator between us, which is what this whole chapter is about. He is there right now, interceding for you, making your defense based on his own righteousness. And then Hebrews 9. Okay. 
Very good. So again, there's an interesting language, the copies. We talked about this a bit before. But lots of creation is a copy of heaven. The tabernacle is a copy of heaven. And you see a three-story world there too, interestingly. And you see this strange barrier between the physical and the non-physical. For example, the incense that wafts through a curtain. What is that? That's prayer. Right? Our prayers are incense in Scripture, in the biblical language. Is incense physical? Yeah. Is the smoke and the smell that it emits physical? Less, but kind of. Once it's through the curtain and it's just a smell, is a smell physical? No. That's your prayers. That's your prayers. Coming from a physical human person, going through this barrier, through the Holy of Holies, and entering the throne room of God. That's the temple. The temple is a copy of heaven. The tabernacle is a copy of heaven. This world is a copy of heaven. And again, that makes sense when we think of this being put back together in marriage. This is a copy. These are physical things to help us see reality better. Noah's Ark helps us to see reality better. Okay? All these things are copies to tell us about heaven. So we can, never, we can distinguish material and non-material, but we can't ever divorce them. We can't ever divorce them. There's an important union there between those things. And that's not just guessing. Hebrews itself says that. These are copies. These are copies. These are models. The ark is a model of the world. Let's keep going here. Um, he will return to judge men and angels at the end of the age. Who wants to take Acts? Ron. And Romans 14. Tyson. And Acts 1. Caitlin. And Second Peter. Joel All right, let's bring it home. We're rounding third here. Okay. Is that 10.42? There we go. Okay. Good. Yeah, so Jesus again is commissioned by the Father for this job. And if you've ever wondered, well, but didn't Jesus say he didn't come to judge the world? And now he's the judge of the world? So did the mission change? Did he get confused? And I'd say, no, we're talking in different time frames. In his first coming, he didn't come to judge. He came to save. In his second coming, he comes to judge. So there's not a change there. There's just different chapters in his redemptive work. Romans 14, who had that? Okay, very good. Acts 1. Who had that? Caitlin.
Okay, so again, how did Jesus go up? Physically or as a hologram? Physically. How's he coming back? Same way. Physical body, physical man returning to his creation. Same way. And then lastly, 2 Peter 2. Who had that? Jolene did, right? Okay. So angels are also awaiting judgment. And there's a strange hierarchy there too. Right now, you notice how we're a little lower than angels? And then in 1 Corinthians 6, we're not supposed to sue each other? Why not? What's the reason given why Christians shouldn't sue each other in court? Because if you guys can't even handle your own affairs in church, how are you going to be ready to judge the angels? There's weird reasoning. For now, we're a little lower than the angels, and one day we're going to be judging angels. Okay? Again, this is this progress, this upward glorification of man, that we will judge the angels at some point. So don't sue each other. Figure out your own problems. Okay? Because you're going to be judging this world as co-heirs with Jesus one day. And so the angels themselves await judgment at the end of the age. Because we know many of them fell. Many did not, but many did. So angels have fallen just like, uh, just like men have. And we'll wrap it up there. Any further discussion on any of this? Are we good to say we're done chapter 4 or section 4? Marina? Right, and I would say part of his mediatorial work is that the Father does give him some judging. How exactly does that work? I don't know. If you read in the Gospel of John especially, you have so much back and forth glorification between the Father and the Son that often both are described doing similar actions in union with one another. I'd say at the very end, it is the Father who commissions the Son. So whatever the Son does, he does by orders of his Father. So even in his work of judging, he's doing it as a vice regent. Same as who created the heavens and the earth. Well, if you read Genesis 1, it sounds like the father. And then you read John chapter 1, and it happens through the son. Right? I I don't think there's a contradiction there. I think there's a relationship that we don't fully understand. How a king can do things through the agency of his prince. Right? But in some kind of human analog, we know that because fathers, here's, you know, any man, this will sound crude, but think about it. This is profound stuff. And young men, I hope you're listening. Any man's path to the future goes through the womb of a woman. If there's no woman, you are cut off from the future. Your claim to the future has to necessarily go through the womb of your wife. It can't be otherwise. So there's agency there. Are my children mine? Yes. But someone else had to be involved (laughs) in getting them, right? I'm the covenant head of our home, but I can't do this without the agency of, of another who's a full equal with me 
yet designed for a different task in creation. Uh, so again, that's just a, a shrunk down human analog, but, but it's true. I think so. I, I'd say even in time, the defense attorney is vastly outgunning the prosecution. <laughs> so, so I'd say it's not an equal contest of attorneys in God's courtroom. But this is why I think that distinction that's biblical and necessary. Jolin just read about the chains of doomy darkness, which is somehow different than the lake of fire. And this is one of the 7,482 reasons I think annihilationism is so deadly <laughs> is because there has to be an eternal casting out of Satan to the lake of fire. Okay, So at Jesus' crucifixion, he says, today I saw Satan fall like lightning, the strong man is bound, all this, and yet he's still prowling around. Right? He's on a chain, but he's not dead. He can still, even a dog on a chain can get to you if you're running too close to it, right? Um, but there has to be another step yet past binding the strong man where he's eternally destroyed <laughs> and the lake of fire. He... Death in Hades has to be thrown into the lake of fire. The chains of doomy darkness aren't the end yet. Death in Hades has to be thrown into the lake of fire for eternal conscious torment. It has to be. Because from there, all access to God's throne room is lost. Now there is no accuser of the brethren. This has to be eternally under the judgment and anger and hatred of God. God's hatred for the accuser of his own children is an eternal hatred. And to just say, it's just going to poof into midair, that it, it makes no, it, it's not biblical and it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The prosecution has to be thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. But right now, yes. He's, he's plaguing our conscience. He's trying to steal assurance from us. He's enticing us with sin. He is in the courtroom making a case against us. This, this is all true. He's bound, but not yet in the lake of fire. And, and that step is, it has to be there. Okay? So don't even entertain annihilationism. I can't stress that enough. If I had to guess, if I had to guess, I would say in the evangelical world in the last 15 years, annihilationism has probably gone from about a 3% market share to probably about a 60% market share. I think it's hard to understand how deadly and how fast this cancer is growing. I don't think it will last because unorthodox theology is always exciting for 15 minutes after it gets a new spray paint job and everyone gloms onto it. But if it's not historical and it's not orthodox, it, it will end up back in the ash heap and then in 100 years someone else will spray paint it and make it sound like it's this new shiny idea that we should all get onto. But this is deadly stuff for our souls. We finished section four. Let's pray. The kids are coming back from Sunday school.
Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you did not leave us in darkness. Thank you that you are our mediator. And Lord, despite the accusations that come from the world and the flesh and the devil, you are making a perfect defense in front of the Father for us. Lord, your case for us is perfect because you are appealing to your own righteousness that you have graciously given to us. Lord, and I pray for this church, I pray for each one here, that as we consider the depth and the richness and the history and the uh, aura and the mystique and the romance of, uh, of theology, of Trinitarianism, of uh, the drama of redemption in history, everything you are doing in your creation, Lord, I pray that you would please keep us humble through that, that it would not puff us up and become proud, but rather that it would make us feel smaller and more humble and more gracious, more patient, more long-suffering, uh, and see unbelievers with pity, knowing that it's your grace alone, that we would not see ourselves as morally superior, but that we would rather just double our efforts to get your gospel into the hands of those who so desperately need it. Lord, I pray for a genuine sense of love and humility in this group. And I pray for an extra dose this morning as we take an important step as a church. I pray that you would bind us together with love, with grace, with humility, with long-suffering, and with patience for one another. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. And we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.